Welcome to the Unlimited Creative, Owning Your Unis podcast. My name is Renee Kitson, and I will be sharing different perspectives on what it means to be a multi-talented creative as I highlight resources and voices that could aid you through your inventive journey. For this episode, we'll be talking to Kamar Thomas, an educator, someone who is in the field of fine art a painter, to be very specific. He has grown up in Portland, Jamaica, and made his way to the U.S., Canada, and many other places as well. Through his experience and research, he has engaged in questioning what makes an artist successful. And so he's written a book about that, profound book about that, Samasafak, and it's titled The Artist's CV, Building Your Own Creative Vision in a Changing World. I don't know about you, but I've heard so many times, okay, so how are you going to make money from that art degree? Is that a moneymaker? Aren't you going to starve? Well, that concept will definitely die today as we share a bit more about the possibilities of being successful as a visual artist. So listen in as Kamar tells you a bit about himself and then as he gives you tips here and there about being intentional about your approach and targeting your audience and also creating your work with this in mind. So let's go. Well, my name is Kamar Thomas, and I am an artist, which means I take risks using a medium, and if people like it, they can offer me some finances so that I can take more risks, so that I can try again. This looks like, professionally, I make oil paintings and drawings and pretty much anything two-dimensional. I usually have my space filled with them, but... Um, renovations going on <laughs> and as uh, I'm also a professor at uh, Centennial College in Toronto and Visual College of Art and Design. Centennial College is full-time and Visual College of Art and Design is an online program that I teach uh, periodically. And lastly, I am an author coming out with a book about how to make work that does some good in the world that you get paid for. Wow, that's that's a lot. I'm just going to say yeah. that is a lot. <laughs> this means that you've been on the grind and basically you kind of have the characteristics of what it means to be a creative in some ways, which is well, based on this researcher called Florida, Richard Florida. He talks about a creative having like a portfolio of a job, a portfolio of jobs. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I think, so part of the reason I wrote a book was because the economy now is changing and is fundamentally different than it once was, where many describe it as the information economy. But the long, the short story is the days of acquiring a skill set, working for a company and them contributing to your retirement and staying there for 37 years and 40 years, that is less likely than it is that a person will now have to acquire a skill set, go to a job, and then as that job changes, either they will have to get more skills or find a different job. They might discover that you know this track is not for me. And so now resumes are looking like a collection of projects that people did, more like an artistic portfolio. No one expects an artist to work on one piece <laughs> for 65 years <laughs> or for 50 years. Resumes now look like, well, I did this project at this company and this is my part in it. And then I did this other project at this company and this is my part. And having done these two, I can offer this. That's what the economy is moving to in general. For artists, is basically, that's how it is now. Um, in 1989, one was a oil painter. That's what you did till you died. In 2029, I think, 
people will do projects in a medium. And people now do projects in a medium. All right. I learned enough oil painting to do this series of 20 paintings. And then I decided to go do a project in video. And then I learned enough in video to do these three or four installations. And then I had this opportunity from a fashion brand that wanted me to look at their interior space and do their runway. And so I did that project. So the world of creative work is moving towards that because the internet really <laughs> because of the connectivity of things people in order to make something different are bringing together different experiences are bringing together different identities you being an artist is something that is very dynamic now you're no longer confined to this specific title and so even the, the name of this podcast is called the unlimited creative because we realize that people are very multi-dynamic. When you are creating work, what mindset do you have in mind? Or what is your creative process like? There's the overall thinking of creativity, and then there's the specific of the painting. So overall, I'm thinking this is a project. I'm going to make a series of things within this project. And then specifically, and then, you know, I've got to figuring out what the idea is and hopefully what I should say at the end. And then there's a specific for my painting practice where I make oil paintings. So this, the project has been for the past, I don't know, however long, <laughs> is identity. And I use the metaphor of masks and performance. And I, I've tried a number of projects. One of them was first to physically paint a mask onto people's faces using face paint take a picture and then paint the results of that another project was photoshop and photoshop is quite frankly the closest we can get to witchcraft it is <laughs> it is as close as one can get to magic in terms of the things that you can do um, visually to manipulate an image so a lot of projects were just pulling together things making you know hundreds and hundreds of different versions of surrealistic pictures and a third project is um i saw instagram have filters i figure that can't be that hard <laughs> to make a filter or make something that augments reality so that's another project that's in the works and i think of these as different you know, tiny little projects to try this one and if this seems to communicate it best do more and if this avenue seems to communicate it best, do more of that. And then as I work, I, I respond to what has already been made. So I've already painted people. I know how that works. I know the range of interpretations. So can I pull together different, not just visual influences, but now can I look to music? Can I incorporate a whole experience in the viewing experience? Can I bring in like something that occupies space, like a sculpture? Can I make sure the audio is adding to the experience? Can I, when I communicate it to people with words, they feel that it's a part of the work itself. So that's how I think of my creative practice. <laughs> Long answer, I know, but... <laughs> No, it's valuable because you're talking about how intentional it is for you and how it is that you're even thinking about your audience and just connecting everything that you've done over the years to even look at how it is that you're going to move forward. Um, and so even a while ago when you said create like a filter, I'm like, wow, you're, you're going far because I, how many artists are thinking of navigating into the digital space through like Web3 or AI? you know, artificial intelligence. People are thinking, but they, don't, they just won't do it. If you're listening to this right now, just do it. Try the smallest bit that you can do to make progress. And once you start, the idea is large, but the execution, you must think, as the smallest possible thing. You can do the smallest. So I went for a run. I have not run like 
a good hard run in years. And all I said, just put on your new shoes and go outside. Once you're outside, well, there are people out here. They are jogging. <laughs> just jog with this old lady. Surely you can keep up with this old lady. <laughs> After five minutes, my body said, listen, I, I don't know if you know, we have not jogged in years. So calm down, buddy. We can do this. And you just keep one foot in front of the other. And then a half hour later, you've been jogging. This one, the old lady beat you. I just want yes. to. Yes. She destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> this old lady, I misjudged completely. Sure, she had gray hair. But her body had not one ounce of wasted fat. This lady used to run track and has for her whole life. Just her neck, her arm looked like it have exactly the muscle she needed. I should have tell because she was wearing like a race jersey. She was wearing the, oh. the jersey you get with the number on it. She had the number on it. And she was just warming up. And I see I'm not gonna beat this old lady. And you know, maybe five minutes in, she just alright, time for me to run. No. Gone. All I could see was her back. <laughs> she was she this lady. <laughs> Life will humble you. Let's talk about that then in terms of this this comparison that you just gave a while ago. Like, one thing though is that you can be like a wonderful artist, um, but like a lot of people out there are probably making more steps than you and are propelling forward. Um, this essence of comparison, how do you deal with it when it is that you are creating wonderful work and you see other people out there that aren't necessarily in the realm of skill level that you are in yeah so comparison is you know as they say double-edged sword is the the english expression it has two sides on the one side it provides a model for you to aspire to aspiration requires comparison you cannot want to be a superstar artist unless you see a superstar or you've heard of superstar artists and you're inevitably going to go well what do i need to do and in that process you are going to compare yourself that's great the downside is if the comparison is looking at things that you either can't achieve like you actually cannot achieve for whatever reason, or you think, as you said, this person has more than me by doing less. <laughs> and that's the general feeling. So how to deal with that? The first thing is context is everything. Um, because you don't have the full context. So when I see somebody, for instance, I rarely think this, but when I see somebody with something that I want, I always think to myself, what's the full context? Did they have... I lived in the U.S. for close to maybe nine years-ish. And there are some grants that are just not open to me. And if I saw somebody who won that grant, I don't have <laughs> the, the, the green card. I don't have citizenship. So I can't get that. Even if I applied it still wouldn't be given to me so the when you see this how to deal with this comparison is to think do you have everything and i mean everything including the circumstances that this other person has if not look at the small piece that you can do and then aspire to that then work towards getting that so i see people who are immensely skilled at drawing and i think Great, I can practice more and I can get that. But if I look at whatever awards they have won, more than likely they knew somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody that I don't know. And it's not even worth my time <laughs> to think through how do I know all of those people. Not even worth my time because they probably had relationships that I can't replicate. It's kind of like having or asking somebody what shop they went to, to purchase their winning lotto ticket. And you going in there, 
buying the lotto ticket and you're vexed that you're not winning. <laughs> so I went to the shop. You tell me go down to the shop. And I went and I buy the ticket. I'm in a win. Yes, because I saw a lot of work. The context matters. Luck matters. Let's talk about how it is that you've navigated yourself from the Jamaican space to be where you are presently. Because many people might think, as you said, like have this external kind of perception of you being a great artist and no external from Jamaica. You have been in the US, you have been, you know, many different places that are people would call it international Jamaica, foreign. Foreign, right? Foreign. Foreign? Yeah, foreign. Indeed. <laughs> like, what was that journey like for you to navigate outside of the box of Jamaica and to also, you know, stabilize yourself to where you are presently? So people can get the realness. To get to the U.S., I went to college. I went to university, Wesleyan University. It cost, at the time, 50,000 U.S. dollars. My family don't have that. If they did, just give me the 50. We're rich. There's no need for me to go to college if you have this 50. <laughs> so it cost 50. Um, you needed to be really good academically, to say the least. And once I was there, it was very, very hard to keep up academically. I did. Won my prizes. Graduated fine. But it was... Uh, expectation of working at a very high level. So that's how I got to the U.S. Then I graduated and I was just working at a supermarket, working part-time and making my paintings. And all I wanted in life is two things. One of them was to make enough money from selling paintings that pays about half of my rent. And the other is I wanted air conditioning because I remember Hurricane Ivan cut off my light and I was just like, this, this heat and mosquito, no, no. I needed two of those things. And when I graduated, I just started telling people, hey, you know, I paint. I'm working in the supermarket there. You know, I paint. And they would go, could you do this thing for me? Could you do that thing for me? And lo and behold, the more people I told, the more people asked me to do stuff. And I figured out then that you just have to tell people. people the, the real issue is that people, once you figure out the skill, is that people don't know. Once you do that, you'll probably be fine. So I did that, and then my visa expired. I come back to Jamaica, and I was teaching at Teachfield High School, my alma mater, a place I will give... If I come into massive amounts of money, I give them first and then we'll figure out everywhere else after. And I was doing the same thing. Go home, paint, let people know I'm into this painting and I was selling paintings. Well, now I can reveal it for 50000 for 45000 25000 This is on top of my teacher salary and people will be paying me in small increments. You know, 5000 this week, 5000 next week. They miss a payment sometimes. But if you have five, six, seven people like that, you you know, this is when you go to the supermarket, you might buy some extra chicken. <laughs> you might be able to afford more things. So this is, in my mind, what success looks like. Just being able to buy back the materials and pay some of my, my bills, some of my life. And once I got that out of the way, everything is extra. So the next time I came back to the U.S. was graduate school. You have to write essays. You have to assemble a portfolio. That requires a certain jumping of through some hoops. But once you are through those hoops, I'm just doing what I have always been doing. Paint, tell people, tell people, paint, paint, tell people. Graduate, same deal. It's not this dramatic, you know, in the trenches story it's just if you want to do any creative thing and you don't stop eventually if you tell enough people and you are focused on getting better at the thing you will be better 
And eventually, so if one person asks you and you do a good job, that's all the marketing you need. They'll tell somebody else. They'll remember you. Where they buy a house, they'll, hey, go, yeah, you did the last thing. We have a house now. Could you do these three walls for us? Of course. I have a cousin named uh, Adiel Thomas. DL. He was in Rising Stars. I think he came third. And he was a musician for well over a decade before he entered Rising Stars. So it was just, by the time he entered Rising Stars, I went to a taping and I sat there. And again, I haven't had reason to cry in years. But I sat there and I was just like, calm down. (laughs) Calm down. This was bound to happen eventually. Because you don't do something for 10 years. And focus on getting better for 10 years. And it not work. It's going to work. If you tell people for 10 years straight. Genuinely tell people. People will hear. And once people hear. Somebody will buy. Sure. There were moments where I was in. All right. I don't live anywhere. I might have to stay. (laughs) Hey. Can I come stay at your place for two, three weeks. Till I get my life together. Yeah, sure. And come and you stay at somebody's place. But that's not more tragic than anyone else's um, trajectory. Anybody who ever moved to Kingston for university from Port Antonio, where I'm from, you are going to stay with somebody until they can sort out a room. It's not any especially difficult trials. And I make take pains to point that out in the book I'm writing. Doing... Artwork is hard. Make no mistake. But it's not especially hard. (laughs) It's not the kind of hard that if you did anything else, it's not like it's going to be easier. (laughs) When you talked a while ago about your book and also about this approach of just like saying that, you know, this is what I do. I paint. What is the formula there? Is there a formula? Is there a specific approach that you take? And I'm assuming that this is mentioned in the book. So tell me a bit about that. Sure. So the formula to coming up with a creative vision is to look at the history of what has been done. Combine that with something that you're interested in. And then the last piece is your biography. So history, interest, biography. I'll give you Busy Signal. Busy Signal's first single was, you know, that song sampled, This is the Land of My Birth. And it was, you know, Where I'm From. You remember that early Busy Signal? And he yeah. got Oh, no, wait, how you go? How you go? Sing it, sing it, sing it, sing it. We can't sing it right now. The voice tired. And it's busy. Uh-huh. It's like, a, it sampled it. This is the land of my birth. Sample that song. And he was, you know, doing his busy signal thing. That is history. And that is what he's interested in. And I remember his first ER interview to ask him, so, you know, Anthony Miller, so how did you start doing this? And he said, you know, in church, you know, remixing hymns and moments say, okay, I can't do God songs like that. (laughs) That's the formula that everybody starts with. You look at what's done before and you, you do what you're interested in. Now, as he has worked, he has developed his own way of just saying words, his own cadence. That's biography. Because of the way his jawbone is set up and his voice sounds in his head and his height and his weight, he does things a particular way. And that's the other piece. You have history, things you're interested in, and you add your particular flavor. So I'm painting, I'm looking at the people who I consider to be the best for what I'm trying to communicate. And I add my little twist to them. And then coming from where I'm from, I throw in the seasoning. I throw in the spice. (laughs) I throw in the jerk seasoning from Boston, essentially. And do that one by one eventually something will come out that's yours. So that's the the general formula. In terms of the book that you're presently doing, right? Which is called The Artist's CV. 
what propelled you into creating a book like this now, knowing that you're basically a full-time artist already and I don't know, I don't necessarily know if it is that you are represented by a gallery or if it is that you're actually independent, but I know that you said that you are actually a lecturer, professor. So what has led you to now create this type of tool for artists? Myth of the starving artist, it has to die. It must go. We're tired of it. Tired of it. It can't really... It has held more people back from just making the work and trying than I think any other myth. And there's a lot of myths out there. But I think the, the idea, the expectation that you will starve if you pursue the arts and that... If you don't starve, it's weird. <laughs> Which has the effect of demonizing money and demonizing payment for making your work. And, you know, charging money is hard for people as a result. They don't know or they feel weird about selling the work. That has to die. That has to go. If that can go, that's why I wrote this book. And why now? Because now is the point in time where we have the tools to make that happen. Now we have the kinds of economy where our tastes aren't dictated by any one source. No company, no religious institution, no one place can say what you should and shouldn't buy because it's your money and it's in your pocket. And if you have access to the internet, even through WhatsApp, you can find somebody somewhere to make what you want and not what will look good to any external entity because it's going to be up in your house. So as a result, I wrote this book for my good people to know the, the, what you think, the people that are tastemakers. Yeah, sure, they exist and they will continue to exist. But if you can follow this formula, look at what's done before, find what you're, pursue what you're interested in, and figure out a way to get your biography in it. You can charge money, and that's fine. And in fact, that's what people pay for. They want your specific point of view. On top of that, it's increasingly becoming a requirement. And so the days of getting uh, representation by a gallery, having them take you to the big art fairs and you're selling paintings for 75000 and you buy your chateau in France and you have a property in Kingston and you have, you know, you get away in Portland. There will be some people that will get that. God bless them. God go with them. But me, we don't have that kind of time to wait till we are picked like that. What we must do is make is innovate in this personal space in this do specifically what only we can do only given our specific experiences and our specific interest and then talk about it shamelessly talk about it as if we are proud of what we have made <laughs> because a good amount of the problem with selling is that people aren't proud of what they have made. So, so when you make work you are proud of, it's easy to sell it because you are proud of the thing. If you're making work that you know is not that good, go and make it better first <laughs> and then tell people. Go and make it something that you can explain in terms of what has come before, in terms of what you're interested in, and then why you have to say it. And lo and behold, when somebody asks you, so what, what is supposed to mean? You can go, oh, well, I was thinking. And it's much easier once that happens. You do that long enough, lo and behold, the starving artist myth will go away. <laughs> it will go away. I need to kill it, and I'm doing my best to just nail, <laughs> nail that up.
No, but let's talk about that then in terms of what is good art, because then there might be some questioning of like, when do I know I can't share? How do I know it is possible for me to share this that I'm working on presently? How it is that I, you know, what is actually good to be shared? Like that, that is a very hard question to ask yourself as a creative. Mm -hmm. So a good rule of thumb is look at whatever your models are. And if you can equal that skill level, share it. If it's, if the skill is what you're imitating, if you can equal the idea, share it before you think you're ready, just before you think you're ready. And the second idea is make a lot. What, however much you're making now, double it and then share. <laughs> so if you are used to making one painting a month, make two and then share. If you're used to making two, make four. A good rule is if you double it, you are less attached to each individual one and you will take feedback much more easily and you appreciate criticism a lot more. And also, you get better. If you are drawing, drawing number one is good, but drawing number 99 is much better than drawing number one. <laughs> Almost always, unless, you know, you stay up 24 hours in a row drawing all 99. But for the most part, get a model. You know you're ready when you are looking at models and you go, if these two were hung in the same space, I would look like I belong. It's the same with music. If you make a song and you play a song you like and you know if this was at a party and my song played next, people wouldn't go, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. If you feel like, okay, after this, if I play my thing, people would go, oh, who this? And like it, then you're ready. And once you feel like you're ready, tell everybody. The third tenet, though, is again, do it before you think you're ready. So share it quick. Because for the most part, we are really bad at telling when we are ready. <laughs> The same way, you know, you if you write anything, you are not very good at editing. Have somebody else read it. <laughs> Share it just before you think you're ready. So make sure, of course, it fits in with what you consider to be the best. But mm -hmm. once you have even like it's kind of close, share it. And then make the next thing quick. So to mm -hmm. share it, mm -hmm. on to the next one. Um, This wise poet once said... Um, his name is Travis Scott. He said, <laughs> he, said yeah. he said, how can you knock somebody for trying? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. even that is even a part of the process itself. Like if you're the one, you know, the, the criticism will come. I did some research on Picasso and... Mm -hmm. Um, on the top, I don't know, it was like 200 artists that, from a money standpoint, have the most money. And in their life, they, they have to have made it in their life. If you're dead, <laughs> nobody, it's, it's no consolation to me after I die that people value my work, give me my money. No. So Picasso was... Um, just as a human, not good. <laughs> not a good role model. Just a physical abuse, neglecting his children. It's just horrible. As an artist, maybe the most prolific ever. He made one painting a day till he died at 90-something. One a day till he died. Sometimes 10 a day. He would, for some painting, he, what's the name of this painting? He made 500 prep drawings for one painting. Ask yourself, have you ever made 500 drawings for anything? <laughs> if not, try making 500 drawings. <laughs> try. Just try. All right, 500 is too much. Try make 50. 50 is too much. Try make one. After you make the one, make two. After two, make four. And then go as much as you can. Because it turns out 
a good amount of the artists that were in the top uh, 50 of earners, they all produced in the tens of thousands of work before anybody knew who they were. So by the time Picasso was 21, he had made like 4,000 paintings. By the time he was 21 and no one knew or cared and he was starving somewhere in, in, a, in a Montmartre in France. He don't have no money. And dealers are like, all right, it's cubism thing. It's it might, but... <laughs> <laughs> but we know that like... He, when he died, you know, something on the order of 15,000 paintings, 12,000 drawings remaining that they could account for because he got rid of many and his estate was near like a billion even though this same man would just shun money he would talk about money me never and he had investments in he had like bars of gold actual bars of gold sir if you don't get out of here with this shunning money buying bars of gold you know what your thickness is Lies. Lies. He's lying to people. <laughs> That's the, the, the other myth. The belief that commerce and art are somehow separate things. Not true. They have always been married, joined at the hip. He who pays the bills influences not just the art that's made, but the kind of art that's possible. And where that art is shown and subsequently what people decide to do. So the starving artist myth is just in the, in the bones of the, pro, of the profession. This demonizing of money is just so deep that IT students have to tell them, look, money is required for bills. <laughs> somebody has to pay your bills. And it's hopefully that somebody is you. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> think about the person purchasing the work while you make it, and you'd be surprised to find out they want it when you, after you have made it. So that's another thing too, um, which is talking to your target audience and actually seeing them and connecting with them. How do you do that? If it is that you're not going through somebody that's doing that for you, like a gallerist or an artist manager, how you as the artist communicate about your work to your target audience and actually know side them that. Yeah, so even no, a, a gallerist, you know, galleries aren't in the business of making kings. You have to already be one. It's yeah. I love the analogy of music. The re- the recording company is not in the business of finding unknown people and taking them through A&R, you know, kind of artist development and giving them voice lessons and teaching them to dance and bringing it. No, they don't do that. They want you to go get a hit before on YouTube or wherever you must get it from. And then they'll put marketing dollars behind. That's kind of what the galleries are in the business of doing. And again, if you have the chance to be Popcorn or Drake or any big artist, please take it. <laughs> Do not listen to me. Run with it. <laughs> Go and sign a deal. Take the money. How do you speak to your audience was the question. The answer is double the output, A, but try and clarify what you're trying to say to yourself as much as you can and then make something. So, Think it's two questions. What is your art for? What is it supposed to do? At the end, after somebody has seen it, what will they be thinking? What will they be feeling? And what will they be doing as a result of having seen it? And if you don't know what that is, go and look at work that you like and think what you are thinking and what you are feeling and what you are doing and try and repeat that. And if you try and repeat that, so there are people who they like horror. They like seeing graphic. They like death. (laughs) That's their thing. And if you are going to make something like that, your audience is people who want to see this kind of thing. 
And your job is don't get vexed when the people who like very cute things aren't interested. It's not for them. <laughs> so first, you look at what you are making, what it's trying to say. Your audience is people looking for that. Find them. And if you don't know where those people are, look at your favorite thing. Where did you find it? That's probably where the audience is. So if you're saying to yourself, oh my, I found it in the National Gallery of Jamaica. How am I supposed to get in the National Gallery of Jamaica? <laughs> is what you might be thinking. Well, you don't immediately get into the National Gallery of Jamaica, but you make work and you go into the gallery and you say, does it fit in here? Would it look out of place? If yes, go and make it better. If no, then you can start telling people and eventually it will work out. I don't want to say con, but I want to say persuasive. <laughs> How persuasive can you get? And that in itself, we, artists are not salespersons. You get what I'm saying? But what is that that you have to have to actually even connect to the same people that might even like your work? Yeah, so let's discuss um, sales. Whenever, you know, I had a, I have a couple of siblings, me and my sister, Terry, growing up. And I would be outside, we would be playing, and I would find something and, and it would smell horrible. What's the first thing I do? Hey, Terry! Terry, go smell this! <laughs> as soon as she smells it, ah, I'm, I'm so happy. That's, that's all selling something is. It's the same process. If, if you want somebody to have the experience you had or to have any experience. So, case in point. My, I am not in the target audience for my own work. I'm not in the target audience. My work, the idea is identity, uh, black identity, or frankly, any identity, is way more broad than people think. And it's changeable. It is within the power of the people acting out that identity to change it. And I made this beautiful painting to explain that point. I don't need to hear that message. I'm the one who made it. I already believe. <laughs> I don't need to hear this. This is, you know, I'm the pastor of the church. I don't need to be preached to. However, my audience is there for people who are open to hearing that. People who are looking for or whose identity has needed to change. So these are people who, if you have ever moved, you're in my target audience. So it's easy for me to tell you about an experience that you have already lived through and I have a physical manifestation of that experience. So when we think sales, we must think, how can I make it like that, <laughs> that smell <laughs> that you want people to same. You go to a... When you hear a song and the song slap, <laughs> you first thing you do, you call your friend. You need to hear this. You know, when I heard um, Skilly Bang, wap wap, <laughs> my brain was like, what is this? <laughs> my brain was like, what is this? I mean, the first thing, send it to the little WhatsApp group. And we had a big debate. Is this where dancehall is going? <laughs> But also, play again. <laughs> it was a whole discussion. And the idea is you must, in the making of it, think through what people are supposed to feel. And by the time you meet the people, you can just tell them <laughs> what you were aiming for. You're speaking very profoundly about, you know, creations or work of art, you know, music that is very Caribbean. Um, and like, even as you talk about identity, I was just thinking along the line of like, how has race, right, impacted you in spaces that supposedly are supposed to showcase your work? Or 
give you a step up? How do you navigate issues around race when it is that you're not living in a society such as Jamaica is predominantly black? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say this. It will be very controversial. Yeah. Might be the most controversial thing I say. Very controversial. Boy, it's been good to be black in the U.S. <laughs> Let me tell you this. <laughs> People see me roll in the room. <laughs> They're like, oh my God. <laughs> you made this? You made this? So, yeah, I did. <laughs> Boy, it's been good. I have received no negative feedback as a result of being as dark as I am. That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> I mean, in my undergrad, somebody threw toilet paper at a group of me and my friends and said, third worlders one time. But that's it. That's it. All the other things were, people were, if not overly excited, they were just actually fighting to contain that they were happy. It has been genuine appreciation, genuine joy I have received as a result. I have never felt unwelcome in any space once <laughs> in my life. I am not so dumb as to think I have not been, of course, discriminated against. But I can confidently say it's probably because I was an asshole, <laughs> not because of my skin. <laughs> I probably deserved it. Boy, has it been good rolling into a gallery and popping out my work and explaining to them my point of view. It's been good. Nothing but good because they are looking for black people. This is the first time probably in history they are looking for, actively looking for black people. I say I'm writing a book. People are going, hey, have you tried this program? They wouldn't have told me that if I were any other skin color. Why? Because publishers are looking for black people, they're look, they're actively trying. They want no. What are their motivations for looking? None of my business. When it's tax season, tax don't care what your motivations for making the money are. They need that check. So I don't presume to think that I have not handled anything systemic. It's just been largely not a factor in determining the outcomes in my life. And when it has been, it's been actually positive. <laughs> it's been people going, hey man, I'm so glad you're black and you're here. <laughs> Whether it's teaching as a professor and the students are like, oh, you know, I wasn't going to take this class, but... Now that I see you are teaching it, <laughs> one wouldn't look at, so discrimination is being denied something, but one does not look at all the things you get <laughs> because you're black. And if it's a scale, the things I've been denied, all right, but the things I have gotten, boy, <laughs> it's been rather, it's, it's been great. It's been very good. What we are trying to do as artists now, the kind of punishment that used to be possible in somebody's life because of discrimination, because of profiling, because of, frankly, being denied from your skin color, there is no single entity that wields that over anyone's life anymore. There's no... No one can stop you from buying oil paint. And they can't stop you from making the paintings you want to paint. And they certainly can't block Venmo from transferring the money into your account. And, you know, if sure, you might not be in the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao in Spain. But guess what? 99.99% of the world is not in the Guggenheim Museum. So it, it's not that it doesn't exist. It's that if there are a hundred things, it might be wherever it ranks, is not enough to stop you. It's not enough to 
stop you from doing your very, very best. Sure, it might come up when you're looking at the extreme higher end. But look here, if you're up there, <laughs> you have different problems. You have, you're thinking about boats. You're thinking about, you know, biennials. You're traveling internationally. But for the most part, you can't. Who, who is going to tell me <laughs> I can't sell my paintings? With, I would love to see what kind of power someone would need to have to get me to not go learn AR, learn um, how to get this digital thing to manipulate on my phone in front of my paintings. I would love to see how that would work. I would love to see how it... What can you say to me where I would go, oh, you've hurt my feelings. But it's, you know, in the US, I'm applying for jobs and I didn't get them because I was... I didn't have a green card. And this is not like... You know, you apply to jobs and you don't know why. They told me why. (laughs) Definitely were like, oh, you don't have... They told me why. And I was like, oh, well... (laughs) <laughs> I still get to paint. It's not like the defining factor. So it might be a factor, mind you. That's not this is we're not living here in heaven now. These streets are not paved with gold. But as long as they're not stopping you from purchasing paint, as long as they're not preventing your voice from working, you'll be fine. If you won't be fine, send me an email. I'll tell you, you'll be fine. <laughs> if you need support, I'll help you. Where can people find you? People can find me on the internet. You can find me on Instagram at O-H-K-A-M-A-R. I used to, as a young man, say very inappropriate things. People go, oh, come on. <laughs> That's my Instagram handle. Or type my name, Kamar Thomas, into the Googles. My website will come up and my bio, etc. If you can, tell somebody about my yet-to-be-published book, The Artist's Creative Vision, The Artist's CV. It's about how to make work you are proud of, so you don't have any trouble telling people about it. (laughs) And you can find that on my website. You can find that on my Instagram page. And if you need some encouragement, I will message it to you personally. Blessings, blessings, blessings. Thank you so much, Kamar. I am just blown away by all of the knowledge and humor that you have basically poured into my spirit because you are just a very wonderful vibe. And I'm glad that you're capable of sharing all that you've experienced so far. Um, And I'm looking forward to hear more about your book. I hope you've enjoyed this session. Follow me on Instagram at Rennie Kitson for more inspiration. Remember that you are enough and that only you can be you. Just go and own up your unison. Boom, bang, bang.